Good morning. Make your way to your seats. Make your way to your seat, mate. See you, dog. <laughs> All right. Good morning. Good morning, America. What show is that from? Is that from something? Oh, it's called a Good America. Cool. Oh, yeah, sorry. I'm not as culturally savvy as I look. Anyway, good morning. My name's Obed, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, you are at King's Cross Church. I hope you know that. Um, <laughs> what a weird introduction. Um, but um, we are incredibly, like every Sunday, I have to work hard to um, remind myself of um, what, what a privilege and, an and a privilege for us to gather every Sunday as a church family and warmly welcome visitors into our church. And so if you're a visitor, welcome. I hope you've been warmly welcomed by our church family. We work hard at being a hospitable um, family. And so welcome all of you. Um, currently, we're in a book. Um, we're in a series based on the book of Philippians. And so if you have your Bibles, whether it's a hard copy, just like mine, or digital on your phone, turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3. The book of Philippians chapter 3. And look at the weather today. It's interesting, isn't it? It's a bit gloomy, cozy. Love it. Um, Philippians chapter 3, and this week we're going to be um, focusing on verses 17 um, all the way to um, verse 1 of chapter 4, verse 1 of chapter 4. And so, um, as we have a tradition of doing every Sunday, may you please stand <laughs> for the reading of God's word. As I adjust my, what just happened here? Give me one sec, guys. There you go. Well, is that Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 onwards, reads, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before, and I'll tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, uh, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time. And God, my expression of thanks at the beginning of my prayer, God, 
I pray and hope and desire for it to be genuine, not just an introduction to what else I'm going to pray, but a genuine expression of thanks towards you, to you, for who you are and what you've done. And so, God, there are so many things <laughs> that you've done, that you're doing, that we should be thankful for. And one of them is this gathering, this weekly gathering on Sundays. And so, God, may you help us see, may you help us experience you in a way that when we do leave this morning, we would look back, not just this week, but even many years from now, we'll be able to look back and say, you used this time to powerfully shape how we view you and powerfully change us into becoming more like Jesus Christ. We love you so much. May we continue to display our love for you by living for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a seat. Um, I've been in ministry for, you know, just over nearly 10 years now. And um, I remember my first job in ministry. I was a youth leader at a small church in the city of London. And as a youth leader, my responsibility was basically to meet with the kind of three or four students that we had in our church at the time every week so that I can encourage them and so that I can study the Bible with them. Um, during one of our weekly studies, one of them randomly asked me a question, randomly said to me, Hey, Obed, I'm planning on moving out <laughs> of my house. Um, don't want to live with my parents anymore. What do you think? Should I stay or should I leave? For him, this was an important question. And so I helped him process um, this question. After I graduated from seminary in 2014 in Los Angeles, Eleanor and I debated um, whether or not to stay in the United States and be actively involved in ministry here or return to the UK and serve there instead. That was an interesting season of our lives because we were asking the question of, should we stay in America or go back to good old England? Earlier this year, Leno and I went to a marriage weekender and some of the key questions they asked us to process together um, were, that would be vital for us to have a healthy marriage um, were some of these. These were some of the questions they asked us to process as a couple. And it was, what were your original dreams for marriage? Why does communication get difficult over time? And what does love look like? A few weeks ago, um, as you know, my family, we adopted a puppy. <sighs> Sometimes I wonder, what were we doing? But he's cute. He poos everywhere. But it's fine. We are potty training him. 
So we adopted a puppy, and before making this life-changing decision for our family, Eleanor and I had many conversations, many conversations about, you know, should we even get a puppy at this stage? Can we handle a puppy? All sorts of questions, important questions surrounding this puppy. On Wednesday this week, um, I had lunch with a few local pastors, and the question on which we spent most of our time was this. Why are most leaders lonely and have few friends? These are some of the important questions I've had to seriously consider and process in my life. And I'm sure you've had to deal with similar questions. And in a room of this size, I am sure some of you are currently wrestling with really important questions. In our text for this morning, we are confronted with a number of critical questions. And not just confronted with these questions, but we are supplied with legitimate answers. And these questions, I believe, are fundamental. And I believe that these questions that uh, are addressed, that rise from this passage, um, will help a lot of us answer some of the most critical questions in our lives. And so the questions that this passage, I think, raises are three questions. They are, who are you following? Are you an enemy of the cross? And what's your nationality? First question, who are you following? Who are you following? Uh, the Apostle Paul, as you know, is regarded as one of the most influential Christian leaders of all time. He is one of Christianity's most significant leaders. And so this morning, we will continue, okay, um, our in-depth study of a letter he wrote to a Christian community in the ancient city of Philippi. Philippians, as you know, is the name given to this letter, the church in Philippi had been around for a little over a decade by the time Paul wrote this letter. It had gone from a small group of people meeting in Lydia's house to a larger church with multiple leaders, similar to our church, right? I remember when we first started four years ago, it was just a few of us meeting in homes. And now the Lord has grown the church and also supplied us with multiple leaders. Surprisingly, Paul wrote this letter while under house arrest in Rome. And he was there um, waiting for his big trial before Caesar Nero. Um, despite the unfortunate circumstances he was having to endure, he still manages to pen this heartfelt letter to the Philippians. And the purpose of this letter, 
okay? The main purpose of this letter is to provide answers to theological questions. It's not, sorry, to provide answers to theological questions or correct doctrinal issues or deal with sin, but Paul's primary motivation in writing um, this letter to the Jesus followers in Philippi was to share his gladness. It was to thank them for their ongoing support and dedication to the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, within this joy-filled letter, what Paul does is he takes the opportunity to warn them, to warn them against false teachers. And he also takes the opportunity to encourage them to radically pursue Jesus And as we've discovered time and time again, this letter isn't just for the Christian community in first century Philippi. We've come to see as a church family, right, in 21st century San Diego, that this letter is relevant for us. Everything Paul says to Philippians in this letter is relevant, is applicable to us. Last week, we looked at um, how Paul used um, the activity of running to encourage us to remain committed um, to seeking an ever wider, ever deeper knowledge of Jesus, even though we're imperfect. All right, you remember verses 12 and 13, 14 of chapter 3, he talks about how I haven't arrived yet. I am not perfect, but one thing I do, I forget what is behind me and I strain or I press on um, towards knowing Jesus and becoming like Jesus. Paul had this attitude towards the Christian life and he wants us to have the same attitude. How do I know that? Look at verse 17. It says, Paul says to them, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So in this part of the letter, what Paul is doing is inviting the Christians in Philippi to um, follow his example. He desires for them to continue to pursue an ever-deepening, ever-widening knowledge of Jesus Christ. I love how the ESV translates this verse. This is the ESV version of it. Look at verse 17 of um, the ESV. It says, um, brother, join in imitating me, imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. To put it another way, Paul is saying to the Philippians, follow my example and also follow the example of those who are living the Christian life just as I am. In context, Paul is like, look, I am not perfect at all, okay? But I refuse to allow my imperfections to discourage me from running hard after knowing Jesus and becoming like him. And I want you to have the same mindset. I want you to imitate my ongoing dedication to knowing Jesus and becoming like him. You see the phrase, be imitators of me. Um, It can be translated as this, 
be imitators with me. Be imitators with me. Of who? All right? Of who? Of Jesus. In another letter Paul wrote to another church, he, this is what he said, 1 Corinthians 11, um, chapter, um, chapter 11, verse 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Put simply, follow me as I follow Jesus the Christ. Paul asked the church in Philippi, right, to follow him as he followed Jesus, and he is asking us to do the same. Paul, what he's going to do next, right, um, um, is explain exactly the reason why he's calling them to follow his example um, when it comes to following Jesus. But um, before we get into those verses, let's talk about the importance of who we follow, of who we follow. Christina Fox says this. She's an author and a blogger. She says this. It's true. We often become like the people we're around, even if we don't know them personally. We'll often model ourselves after people we admire. And so what Paul is assuming is that we mimic and imitate others but he wants us to make sure we're imitating those who are imitating Jesus. And so let me ask you a question, okay? Who are you following? Who do you devote most of your time to? In the world we live in, okay, we have access to a ton of information and a ton of profiles online. And so we have to be intentional about always asking the question of who we are actually following, who we're listening to, who are you spending the majority of your time with. In verse 17, Paul is reminding us to follow godly examples, to follow people who live to imitate Jesus. We naturally imitate others, and so as followers of Jesus, let us seek to imitate those who imitate Jesus Christ. And so that was the first question, who are you following? Here's the second question, are you an enemy of the cross? Are you an enemy of the cross? Things are going to get really interesting now, aren't they? Yeah? Look at verse 18. Paul carries on. He says, For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. This right here is exactly why Paul encourages the Philippians to imitate him and others who live to imitate Jesus. In this part of the letter, Paul gets emotional, really gets emotional, right? Look at his word. He says, I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears. He's teary-eyed as he reminds the followers 
of Jesus in Philippi that there are people out there who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Teresa Swanstrand Anderson, she has a cool name, says this. The idea of someone being against God, walking in enmity against him, deeply affects Paul and grieves him to his very core. Whenever you think of McDonald's, you think of golden arches. The swoosh is the logo of American sportswear designer and retailer Nike, or Nike, as you would say. The Star of David is recognized as the symbol of the Jewish community. The Um, hope I pronounced it right, is one of the most important religious symbols to Hindus. And the faith of Islam is symbolized by the crescent and star. Every religion and organization has a symbol. And this includes Christianity. But Christianity, unlike other religions and organizations, chose to utilize an instrument of death as a symbol. The cross is the symbol of Christianity. And the reason Christians glory in the cross is because of what it signifies. True story, historical facts here, over 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth was nailed to a wooden cross and he was nailed to the cross not just to suffer physically but to absorb the punishment and judgment we deserved for our sins. We sinned, he didn't, but he received the punishment for our sins on the cross. And because of this, because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, forgiveness of sins has been made available to everyone everywhere who stops living for themselves and starts living for Jesus. This truth is well expressed by a line from the well-known hymn, How Deep the Father's Love, it reads, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. The cross of Christ signifies hope. It's a reminder of God's immeasurable grace. It exhibits just how deep and wide his love is. It points to how far God was willing to go to make salvation possible for humanity. The cross of Christ is the death of Christ, and the death of Christ is how our sins are forgiven. And as we talk about the gospel, as we talk about the cross of Christ, I hope you are being stirred. 
I hope you are being stirred emotionally. I hope there's something in you that says, man, that sucks. It was me. It was because of my sins that um, um, caused Jesus to suffer like that. But there should be something else in you that says, praise God. Thank you. John Piper articulates the beauty and the relevance of the cross in this way. He says, life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross. Cherish it for the treasure that it is and cleave to it as the highest price of uh, every pleasure and the deepest comfort and every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. The cross is more than a universal symbol for Christianity. The cross is first and foremost the the symbol of Christianity because for every Christian, it signifies love, grace, wisdom, power, and it should be our only boast. We should glory in the cross. We should brag about what God did for us through Jesus' cross. And as Christians, we sing and we celebrate the cross. But sadly... The cross of Christ isn't a symbol of love and grace and mercy and a reminder of God's unbelieving grace for everyone. In fact, some people, believe it or not, despise the cross. They want nothing to do with the cross of Christ. In other words, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And so the question is, and I know you're thinking, and I know you're thinking because you're all thinkers, the question is, who exactly are the enemies of the cross of Christ? Okay? What does an enemy of the cross of Christ actually look like? When you think of an enemy of the cross of Christ, all right, think about it now, group exercise. Think about the enemy of the cross of Christ. Who comes to mind? How would you describe somebody who is an enemy of the cross of Christ? Maybe for some of you, um, you thought of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, okay? who abused and twisted the law in order to have Jesus killed. Maybe when you think about enemies of the cross of Christ, you think about the staunch atheist who is determined to disprove Christianity. Or when you picture an enemy of Christ, some of you pictured the people involved in the persecution of Christians. And yes, these are, you could say these are all enemies of the cross of Christ. But Paul's description of the enemies of Christ in this section is different. His profile of an enemy of the cross of Christ is not who you would expect. And so let's have a look at it. Look at verse 19, guys. Look at verse 19. It's getting really interesting, okay? Paul says, okay, remember he said, he said, right, I am, I am, 
grieving that there are enemies of the cross of Christ. And then in verse 19, he describes who they are. He says, their destiny is distraction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. This is his description of an enemy of the cross of Christ. Okay, and so let's, let, let's unpack this and let's try and understand, okay? Um, first, he says an enemy of the cross of Christ is then destined for destruction, okay? This one is obvious, right? Because an enemy, if you're not for Jesus and you haven't repented and Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, uh, your end goal, okay, is eternity without him, Okay? And the first reason why enemies of the cross of Christ are destined for destruction is because, look at it, their God is their stomach. Some of your translations say their God is their belly. In other words, what makes someone an enemy of the cross is someone who lives as if their God is their stomach. The word stomach is a first century euphemism for your bodily appetites, like food and drink and even your sex drive. And so enemies of the cross basically are under the influence of their bodily appetites. They worship their bodily urges, cravings, and desires 24, seven, 24 hours, seven days a week, okay? R. Kent Huge breaks it down like this. He says, it was not merely the pleasures of, of the stomach that was their God, but the bodily desires and sensual del delights that displaced the divine and became their God. Those who are enemies of the cross of Christ are also glory in their shame. In today's language, Jesus haters brag about shameful things. In Greek, the word shame has sexual connotations. It's one thing to indulge in your sensual desires, but it's quite another to take pride in them. And so instead of feeling ashamed of sin, right, enemies of the cross of Christ, what they do is they brag about it. They boast about it. They celebrate their sinful practices. They take pride in what they should be ashamed of. The last trait of an enemy of the cross of Christ is someone whose mind is set on earthly things. Whose mind is set. Simply put, they are preoccupied with life on earth. They live for the things of this life. And so, according to Paul, in this passage, who is an enemy of the cross of Christ? Anyone who is destined for distraction because they idolize their appetites, brag about shameful things, and are preoccupied with worldly things. And so what is this showing us? This is it. 
an enemy of the cross of Christ is not who you would expect. It's not just a man or woman who is aggressive or violent towards Jesus and his people. But an enemy of the cross of Christ is anyone who lives for themselves and is blind to the value and beauty and magnificence of the cross. Therefore, an enemy of the cross is the person who has made an informed decision to reject the existence of God. It's also the person who politely refuses to recognize Jesus as the king of their life. It isn't the person who is a vocal critic, just the person who is a vocal critic of Christianity, but um, an enemy of the cross of Christ is a person who lives for their own passion. It's the person who is more in awe of creation rather than the creator. It isn't just a relative you have who mocks you for your faith, but also um, the relative who says, I respect you. You're cool with Jesus. He's not for me. Someone who's an enemy of the cross is anyone who has not yet come to believe that the cross of Jesus Christ is what made it possible for them to enter into an everlasting relationship with God. And so I have to ask this. Are you an enemy of the cross of Christ? And let's remember, an enemy of the cross of Christ is not someone who is aggressive and violent towards Jesus and his people. An enemy of the cross of Christ is someone who has chosen to live for themselves rather than live for Jesus. And so where are you at? Are you an enemy of the cross of Christ? If you are, you don't only love, you don't only love yourself, you're not only consumed with earthly things, but this is telling us that your destiny is distraction. We have to talk about this, right? It's right there. But this morning, if you're like, man, I don't know, I am an enemy of the cross of Christ because, look, I don't value Jesus. Jesus is like my homeboy. Jesus is like my afterthought. He's an accessory. And I haven't really come to the point of valuing and treasuring Christ and what he's done for me. If this is you this morning you have an opportunity to change that and change your destiny. And that opportunity is revealed in the verses that follow. And so we've looked at two important questions. The first was, who are you following? We just looked at, are you an enemy of the cross? Lastly, the question we're going to explore is, what's your nationality? What's your nationality? Look at verse 20. 
but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the phrase, our citizenship is in heaven, okay? It can also be translated, we are a colony of heaven. We are a colony of heaven. Quick history lesson. Back in those days, the Roman Empire dominated the world, and they did it extremely well, okay? Incredibly successful. And the reason why they were so successful is because whenever they took over a city, they conquered a city, what the Romans would do is aim to Romanize that particular location. They wanted to make sure that that particular place adopted everything about Rome. Adopted Rome's government, authority, law, culture, art, architecture, music, philosophy, religion, everything. So much so that when people visited a Roman colony, they would say, this place reminds me of Rome. It's just like Rome. In view of this, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a little Rome, okay? Just like little Italy, little China, a little Rome. And the citizens of Philippi were considered Roman citizens. And they were very proud of this status, very proud to be Roman citizens. And so when Paul says to the Christians in Philippi, our citizenship is in heaven, he's reminding them that even though they live in the Roman colony of Philippi and they are Roman citizens, their real citizenship is in another place. They're dual citizens, just like my kids. Okay? They're American, born here, but they're, you know, because parents, their parents are from the UK, they have a British, and so they're dual citizenship. And so Paul is saying, look, Roman citizen, but your citizenship is in another place. And in saying this, he's actually letting them know that they are actually a colony of heaven on earth. And this is significant. This is why. Think, Rome, Romans, go to a place in order to make it more and more like Rome. And so if Paul is telling them that they are a colony of heaven, what Paul is saying to them is that this is not an opportunity to check out and disengage from the culture. Your goal is to spread the gospel in such a way that everyone everywhere would become citizens of heaven. And so, what's your nationality? 
What's your citizenship? As I was studying this, I was so convicted because I have come to embrace my British citizenship more than I embrace and value my citizenship of heaven. Eleanor and I, not American citizens, and we are in the process um, of applying for our green card, okay? And because of this, I've been thinking about this a lot, and it was just fitting that I would be teaching on this whole citizenship thing. And when Eleanor and I first arrived in America, we were just so British. We were, right? We've been diluted now, and we're way more American than we were, but we were incredibly British to the point where we would just talk and use words that no one would understand, okay? Like sentences, and people would be like, ah, what does that mean? What does that mean? All of that. It's my best American accent. And so... And so that's how we were British, and everything about us was British. How we spoke, the language we used, and the food we ate, how we just conducted ourselves was British. Earlier in the letter Paul wrote to the Philippians, he says this. In chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Conduct yourself as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so what this means is that Paul is reminding us that we are a colony of the kingdom of heaven and our actions should reflect our true nationality. People should look at the lives of believers and immediately notice that there's something different about us. And some of you have experienced this. You've walked into a new job. You've walked into a new gym. You've walked into a new hike, wherever, right? We socialize. And you, you realize just how different you are. And you don't just realize it, but other people do as well. C.S. Lewis says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have, that sentence is weird. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And so he's basically saying that the whole idea of if you think too much about heaven and, uh, and uh, you know, the new earth and the new heaven and Jesus coming back, the, the, the tendency is to think that the more you think about it, the less you're active here. But it should be the opposite. It should be the more you realize that you are a citizen of heaven, the more you desire for other people to become citizens of heaven as well. We're not only citizens of heaven, but we eagerly await a savior. Verse 20, from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so interesting, all right? First century Caesar was called Savior and Lord, okay? 
there are coins from the first century with Caesar's photo on one side and Lord or Savior on the other. In the colony of Rome, Caesar was Lord and Savior. And so when Paul says to the Philippians to eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's controversial. Very controversial. He's reminded them that Caesar is actually not their Lord and Savior, but Jesus Christ is their true Lord and Savior. And he's also reminding us of the same thing. King's Cross Church, Jesus Christ is our true Lord and Savior. We are first and foremost citizens of heaven not citizens of America or Britain or wherever you're from. And our commander-in-chief is not the president of the United States or the prime minister. We're still looking for one, actually. (laughs) We don't have one anymore. But our true leader... It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus returns, because he's all-powerful, he will be transformed by him. Look at verse 21. Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies, right? The Greek behind that is something of humiliation, being humiliated by something. And it's true, like our bodies now kind of humiliate us. And I saw this illustrated clearly. One of our neighbors just bought a Porsche, okay? Just incredible car. It's all electric. It's one of the top, top, top Porsches, right? And the other day, I saw him getting an Uber to work. And I said to him, I hope your Porsche hasn't broken down. Gosh, this is incredible. It's an amazing car. No, don't tell me it's broken. And he was like, no. The reason I'm getting an Uber to work is because... I've had eye issues, and I can't actually see properly, so it's dangerous for me to drive. I looked at that, and I was like, that sucks. You have a Porsche, and you can't drive it. And me, I'm having all knee issues, man. Like, the older you get, you don't have to be old, but our bodies are frail. And they're very lowly indeed, right? And he's saying when Jesus comes, he'll transform these lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Gosh, I wish I had time to talk about the fact that Jesus is actually coming and we're not actually going to him, okay? It's crazy. Think about it. The other day, (laughs) Eleanor says to me, oh, um, I think Messi is going to be going to heaven, our dog, because he's so sweet and cute. And I was like, uh. <laughs> and I was thinking a lot about that concept of heaven. And a lot of the time, we think that when someone dies, they kind of just leave and go, and that is it. But what's going to happen is that, yes, we're going to die. Our bodies will be in the ground, but our souls will rise, okay? And then when Jesus returns, what will happen is he will resurrect our bodies, and our souls and our bodies will reunite, will be united again. It's crazy theology. Don't have time to go into it. And so the question is, what's your nationality? 
What kingdom are you a citizen of? If you are a Christian, Jesus is your king and you're a citizen of his kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, and you exist to live under the authority and reign of Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a citizen of heaven this morning, you can become a citizen of heaven by being born again. By being born again. So like I've said, Eleanor and I are applying for our green card trying to become like more stabilized kind of citizens in America. And the process is crazy. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of money, a lot of work, the best attorneys, okay? Um, In order to actually qualify for something like that, you have to have a clean record. They ask you questions like, have you ever been involved in any terrorist activity? Have you ever done this? You know, they're very clear on what they're looking for. And it's a long process, tons of money. We have to pay a lot, a lot of work, medical exams, all of that. We have to prove to America that we are legit in order to be considered citizens of America. But to become a citizen of heaven is different. The good news about becoming a citizen of heaven is that you don't have to go through a lengthy application process and prove that you are legit and prove that you are morally upright. You don't have to do anything to become a citizen of heaven, you just have to receive what has been done for you in Jesus Christ. You don't have to work or pay to become a citizen of heaven. You just have to receive as a free gift made possible by the finished work of Jesus Christ, the gift of salvation. That's the difference, people. And that is why we glory in the cross. We sing and celebrate all that Jesus is and all that he has done because it's only in him and through him that we get to have an everlasting relationship with the creator of the universe. And so King's Cross Church, may you follow in the footsteps of those who live to imitate Jesus. May the lives of the enemies of the cross cause grief and passion for gospel proclamation. And may the gift of your citizenship and your future glorification bring joy to your souls. And may you stand firm as you seek to know Jesus and seek to represent him as his citizens here on earth. Let's pray. God, we covered a lot. (laughs) And I know that we explored several questions. And I tried my best to provide sufficient answers, but God, I know that I'm so limited in so many things, and so God, we all have so many questions, and so the questions we have 
that have been triggered by all that we've explored, God, I pray that you would provide answers. Through your spirit, provide answers. And through your community, your people provide answers. We love you because you first loved us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us so that we may come to know you and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.